0: Welcome to episode 61 of the Empowering Ability Podcast.
1: You are listening to the Empowering Ability Podcast and written expectations for what is possible for people with disabilities. Here is your host, my brother, Elba.
0: Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Empowering Ability Podcast. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation, really wide-ranging conversation I had with Lorna Sullivan. And Lorna is a global disability leader who is really making a significant positive difference for people with disabilities and their families in New Zealand. And Lorna is also the founder of the International Initiative for Disability Leadership, and she's the director of Mana Faikaha. And hopefully, Lorna, I got the pronunciation of that right in the intro, because I definitely did not in the podcast itself. Um, Now, in this podcast, we do have a very wide ranging conversation, including talking about um, doing away with deficit-based assessments, enhancing a person's mana, and Lorna talks more about what mana means um, in the podcast, really holding a powerful, uh, positive vision and, and how that impacts a person, and a person with disabilities and their family, uh, the rights of people with disabilities, and tools for social inclusion. So, so much inside this podcast, and I think you are going to love it. Let's dive in. Hi, Lorna. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today.
1: Oh, kia ora, Eric. Um, it's a welcome from New Zealand. And it's a pleasure for me to be able to share some thinking with you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Lorna. And uh, it's been an honour to, uh, I'd say, be a student of yours. So we first connected through uh, a mutual connection and, and friend, Michael Kendrick, uh, in his uh optimal service design course so uh, i had the pleasure of spending a week with you um and then we connected again at the um double idl so the international mm-hmm. initiative for disability leadership conference uh this past september in uh, in washington dc and um thank you for for taking me up on the offer to to chat today on the on the podcast but um I know that you are the founder of the International Initiative for Disability Leadership. So I'm just curious. We never really got to talking about that. How did how did that come about for you? And, and maybe you can share a bit of kind uh, of your background and, and story around disability.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the Double IDL um, initiative came about really. Um, through Fan Silvestri, who's the chief executive and founder of IIMHL, which is the International Initiative for Mental Health Leadership. And he had been thinking for some time or, or become aware for some time that for many of the mental health leaders, they also had disability portfolios and we hadn't uh, hadn't developed a program or, or leadership um, structure for that purpose. So he he approached me to see if I would be interested in Participating in one of the exchanges, that was about 14 years ago. Um, And we tried to set up, or we did set up, a very small exchange in the United Kingdom. And that was the first time that I, it gave me the opportunity to experience it and to see how it would fit with the disability world. And from then, we continued to go on to build a leadership agenda that is an international one that compasses professionals, disabled people and families in those leadership roles.
0: And and how did so if you could take us kind of back to the beginnings for for you, uh, I'm curious of, of that as well. So how did you get involved with you know serving and, and being an ally to to people with disabilities?
1: I, I guess um almost by accident, in many respects. I mean, New Zealand's not a big country, and it's quite a uh, isolated from the rest of the world in a lot of ways. And I grew up in the fifties, so um, I suppose in lots of ways had a privileged upbringing where I was taught that New Zealand's values and ethics um, from my family, and and then as a young adult when I went to university and studied psychology, and found myself doing internships in institutions that I didn't even know existed, and met people that I didn't even know existed. That really spoke to me of um, kind of a whole different layer of society, and it spoke to me of the damage that is done when a group of people, through no fault of their their own, isolated and marginalized from the rest of society and have no mechanism to find their way back and so i guess that set me on a journey of trying to discover why would something like that happen in a country like New Zealand and what might be the pathway to reintegrating people or for society to understand that people with disabilities are essentially the same as every other person was the same human needs, aspirations, desires, etc. And I'm still on that journey, and yeah, yeah that's been a very long time.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and when you when you say that, like this, this similar thing comes up for me of being a Canadian and thinking about Canadian values, and I think there's probably some similarity, yeah. um, but the treatment of people with developmental or intellectual disabilities, you know, being the same, do you, from your experience and the conversations you've had from, with people around the globe, would you say that that's uh, a a reoccurring pattern, no matter your geography, that the experience for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities has been one of, they've been segregated from the rest of society, um, in many cases, warehoused and, and isolated?
1: Uh, all the evidence that you would see is that that is the case irrespective of what society people live in. Um, in fact, you know it almost comes back to the sense of people with disabilities have been treated less than human. And And here we are you know, in the 21st century, and we still don't seem to understand how we might embrace a person, who, for one reason or another, doesn't think the way we think, um, and I and and yet that person might be our child or our neighbour. They're not a not somebody who is foreign to our culture. So it speaks to you know it's it kind of lays the foundation for why people get segregated into being the other and somehow different, and somehow once you're different, you're lesser than. And we still see that, even though we know that uh, people with developmental disabilities can learn, can prosper, have the same dreams and aspirations, can hold down jobs, uh, can, with the right support, uh, be contributing valuable members to society, we continue to see developmental disability as a, a human tragedy and that the best we can do for these people is to care for them and therefore deny them every aspect of life that we would hold to be valuable. So, yeah, it's universal. Yeah.
0: And I know that you are a change maker. I don't know if, if you describe yourself as that, but someone who um, is, you know, not doesn't sit idle and speaks up and... and uh, sets things into action so um, I know a little bit about the current work that you're that you're doing um, and you've been coaching me on how to say this so <laughs> hopefully I get it right but I was wondering if you could tell us more about your current work with mana the fika- <laughs> I, I messed it up <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's very close mana fai kaha
0: mana fai kaha so, thank you yeah.
1: <laughs> Um, mana in uh, in the Maori language speaks to the essence of a person person is born with mana and that mana grows uh, through their life but mana can be diminished by the circumstances outside of that person so to enhance one's mana is to continue to build the essence of that person their respect, their dignity, their value and kaha. Uh, speaks to disabled people. So what mana kaha means in translation is to nurture the mana of all disabled people. Hmm. I like that. And my role there is uh, I'm the director of mana kaha, which essentially is a prototype or the New Zealand government is trying to prototype what might need to happen in order to transform the current disability system which we have in New Zealand, which I would describe as a post-institutional system. So while the big institutions were disestablished some 30 years ago, essentially the institutional nature of services hasn't changed fundamentally and that they continue to uh, congregate they continue to segregate they continue to deny the disabled people authority over their own lives where they might live who they might live with how they might engage in the world and you know as a country like canada that has signed up to the united nations convention on the rights of disabled people we recognize that we cannot continue to do that but it's interesting how deeply culturally ingrained those institutional models are and how extraordinarily difficult it is to then unpick them. They're in fact harder to unpick than the big institutions were because they were visible and you could see what was happening there but in these little pockets of isolated institutions and institutional thinking and perception it's a bit like putting your fingers into candy floss it's quite hard to grip hold of mm,
0: yeah so they, our
1: work is endeavoring to change that
0: right yeah the the experiment of taking the institution and scaling it down but still fundamentally having the same systems and processes in place doesn't work um, it doesn't
1: work i'm uh, sort of 12 months, 18 months into kind of thinking this role now. And while the the government is talking about systems transformation, I'm more interested in talking about transforming the lives of people because if we can transform the lives of people, then we might understand whether or not we need a system to sustain that. Now, I'm sure we will need a system of some sort, but what might the nature of that system be Rather than the system determining what the lives of people might look like, let's have people determining what the system that sustains them might look like. But yeah it's, it's a journey and yeah. we've just really started it.
0: Yeah, so how is that currently um, manifesting itself? like so you said 12 to 18 months, what is that what does that look like? Uh, Maybe start there, and then I'm also curious to where you see it going based on what you've
1: learned. Right. Um, Well, where we've started really is at the point at which people access the system. And uh, under the traditional model, people would access the system through some form of assessment that tries to quantify their need and then applies resources uh, to endeavour to meet that need. However, when you look at that process, what those assessments tend to do is simply quantify functional deficit. So they're deficit based models and will provide some resources to compensate for the functional deficit that you have. But in fact, we won't even acknowledge the fundamental human needs that you have around life purpose, life meaning, friendship, relationship, participation um those things are not even recognized as needs and yet when you engage with people certainly the functional needs can be taken care of and must be but life is made up of all these fundamental needs and so our process is to essentially do away with functional assessments and rather look at the the kind of model coherency questions. Who is this person? And let's understand who the person is, not who the person is not, who they'll never be, what they'll never amount to, but who is this person? What, what are the gift, skills, abilities this person brings? What aspirations do they have for their life? What supports are they going to need if those uh, gift, skills and abilities are going to mature? and um, become apparent and shared. So it's trying to change the whole way people access service. And the approach then is not, okay, well, how much government money are we going to give you in order to meet those needs? It's where might those needs be met? How might they be met? And who might best meet them? And that talks to community because the reality is most of our needs, Can't be met through paid relationships. They can only be met um, through the ordinary places and the ordinary opportunities that community offer. So, while um, funded services are still a component of our work, building community around people, um, working in a community development uh, way within community and in society so that we can start to shift the culture and thinking of society and working alongside of providers so that if people do come with their budgets and want to purchase something, we can support providers to understand how to change those models and what they might need to do in order to shift the structures so that they can be responsive to the people they're serving. Essentially, in a nutshell, (laughs) that's what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, I love that. And one of the things that, there's many things you just said that are worth repeating, but the one that uh, is ringing in my ears is that you're focusing on who the person, who is the person, not who they are not. Right. So focusing on who they are rather than,
1: and you know, then, then how they are defined by the system currently. And, you know, many parents would, would totally understand this. The message you get when this baby is born with a disability is not a message of hopefulness, of purpose, of opportunity. It tends to be a message of burden, of struggle, of deficiency, of deficit. We've got to change that message because, you know, disabled people like anybody else, disabled children are going to live up to the expectations that people hold of them. And if we don't hold any, then you have a self-fulfilling prophecy but we we can see like when i started working in this field in an institution i would see little children f- 5 years old coming into that institution who had down syndrome because the schools wouldn't educate them they were seen as uneducable i now know people with down syndrome who've done a, a degree at university particularly one woman I'm thinking of, who's done a degree in fine arts. Now, have people with Down syndrome changed in that time? Or has our understanding of their potential changed and our expectation for their lives changed? And if we don't have that expectation that this child will be as good as it can be, whatever that is, then we will always constrain the capacity of people.
0: Yeah, and wow! Like, how powerful would it be if the parents of a child that bring a uh, a baby into the world that has that that has a, a disability as part of who they are, if those parents fundamentally believe that that child is capable and can go to university, right? When that when they're holding that baby in their hands, if they're holding that belief then, that is extremely powerful.
1: In fact, it's the only thing that will change the trajectory of of the lives of people with disabilities. Where you have got strong families with strong vision, you have strong, competent disabled people. Where you don't, irrespective um, of the capacity of that person, you have dependency. And dependency that's lifelong i'll tell you a little story i have a grandson who's on the autistic spectrum and i think my daughter's a bit of a draconian parent and so i would think oh i have to go and rescue those children on the weekends and i went in my little grandson was two and on the fridge was his worksheet his task sheet and i said to her oh, are you running a child labor camp here now and she got quite angry with me and she says he's perfectly capable and what's more he gets great pride. And what he was doing was taking the knife and fork thing out of the dishwasher and matching it up to where they belonged in the cutlery drawer. And she was absolutely right. And her expectation that there is no difference here and that this child needs to have roles right from the start, the same as everybody else, and contribute sets that child up for a much different life set of life opportunities than if it is, oh, let's just make sure he's happy.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, I love that story. It's an important one for, for families to hear.
1: Planning for adult life starts as a child, you know, a little person. And that's where families have to be thinking about that. What roles do I give my child now? What expectations do I have of them? What relationships am I building for them so that they can be contained in a social context? Right.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's the best time to do it. And the one thing that I always tell families is the best time to start is right now. Like we don't have a time machine. (laughs) We can't go backwards. Um, You know, the best time to start is right now. So if uh, parents listening to this and they have a 30-year-old um, son or daughter with a disability, you can still do that work right now. And you can still impact your son or daughter's life by increasing expectations and helping them live into those expectations and, and that, having that high belief for them.
1: It's never too late Eric that's the key as well it's never too early but it's never too late and you know I have seen the lives of people or a particularly a particular woman I'm thinking of who left an institution at the age of 60 she's 80 now and her the last 20 years of her life have been the best years of her life um, so it is never too late
0: yeah what are some of the things like if you're familiar with her story, um, from sixty to eighty, what are some of the what did her life look like? Uh,
1: she, she when she left the institution with good support and a circle of support began to build around her because she was an isolated woman, uh, no family uh, engagement with her. She lives in her own little home. She has a she has funded supports, but she has an informal circle of support around her at her. 70th birthday she had an enormous birthday party and I think Michael Kendrick went to that birthday party (laughs) where she had um, a whole network of people that she could invite to her birthday that she never knew the 10 years before she's also on the committee of the community resource unit and is a very fiery old lady who has her voice heard at every meeting Um, but she lives now very much like a person in their eighties would live. Um, she has her friends around her. She has her, her little roles in life. She has her own little house where she maintains as much of her independence as she can. That was an undreamt of life hmm. twenty years ago. Hmm.
0: That's she's a, written a little book. Uh, what's can you share with the? Do you know? What I, the, can't the the okay. I can't remember well, the name. I can't remember the name. Maybe afterward you can. If you get it, you can Find email it. it to me, and I'll include it in <laughs> yeah. the in the notes for for listeners um that's an inspiring uh story for families because you know i I talk to a lot of families about inviting other people in and um what a common response that i get back is well well there's nobody else right and and that might just be um a thought in their mind and there actually is a lot of other people if we if we put pen to paper and or if we build a relationship map for example um but in some cases like it, there might be some truth to that it might be well we just um immigrated from a, a different place in the world and it's actually you know only our small family here we actually don't have any relationships here yet but that's still more. Than the woman you were just telling us about that That's moved right. out of an institution, right? So if she can yeah. do it at 60 with no family, then anybody can do it.
1: Yes, if they have the right networks around them to support them. If you, you know, that comment, there's nobody else, and I hear it a lot. Often what's happened is actually the family has pushed people away, not intentionally often. But this, oh well, you know, I can't invite people in. My child might behave badly, or I can't take them out, and and so, oh no, I won't. I won't ask grandma to look after them because it's too hard. I'll get a paid person, and we start to replace those natural relationships that are there with paid ones. Then we don't know how to find our way back. I was just um, working with a family this last week, actually, where we were looking at. Um, how we might engage this young man in, in some work activities or so that he could understand work and how to engage in community. And we started to identify people that were around in the family's life. And the mother said to me, you know, all those people are there. She says, I just never realised they were there. I've never thought about them in terms of my son's life. And I think we get ourselves to that point because we have so bought into this culture that everything has to be paid for. And in some respects, that culture is the culture of burden. My child might be a burden. If we can change that to, look, my child is this gorgeous gift that I have and I want to share that with other people, then we change the way we engage with people. And even though the kid might, be challenging people can cope with challenges they just need to understand how to make that happen yeah i've got a, the little story of a mum who just took a personal budget um, in very recent times and she'd never been able to get a break that worked for her and she said to me day, i'm getting the best breaks now i've ever had she said it costs me five dollars a week she says you know what i do i take my son who's got quite severe autism She said, I can't take him to many social places, but I take him to McDonald's and I put him in that caged playground where he yells and screams with every other kid and I go down the other end of McDonald's and buy myself a coffee and read a magazine for an hour, she says, and it's fantastic. And nobody else there sees that there's anything different um, with my son. How much better is that than him being sent to a respite centre? Yeah, And I just think, you know, we've got to think in the ordinary a lot more and actually society can cope with a lot more than we give it credit for.
0: Mm. Yeah. That um, there's so many places we could go, but I think it's maybe a nice segue uh, Lorna to one of the things that, that you've shared with me in the past is kind of some values that you operate under, or, or you help to, to get, um, maybe influence others to operate under as well. And uh, one of those values was, I am um, not I can't remember the exact language that you used, but it was like uh, everything ordinary first or something like that. The way that I internalize that what, is think ordinary, like you just said, but maybe yeah. you can share a little bit about that thinking with us.
1: What I say is never resort to the special until you've exhausted the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is far more ordinary in the world than there ever will be special, and so if we if we start with the special, uh, then we will always end in the special, and um, you know we do it all the time, don't we? We think, oh, we'll have the special riding over here, we'll have special dancing, we have special Olympics, we have special everything, um, whereas actually, you know guess what, you can go horse riding with a real horse in the real riding school. You can, you, your child can learn to dance with all the other five-year-olds who have no idea what they're doing and don't do anything that the teacher tells them uh, to anyway. And if we start at that sort of point of an expectation that every child has the right to access the ordinary places of society, doing ordinary things with ordinary people, then we have a much greater opportunity of building relationships, connections, understanding. Now, I know for a lot of parents, there is fear of rejection from those places, and that is true. And in some places, and in many instances, actual rejection is true. And so, uh, rejection is a very hard human emotion to deal with, especially when it's around your child. And so, we resort to places where, well, my child will be safe here and I think a lot of certainly with the work that I'm doing the community development work that I'm doing now I think um, there's a lot of work we need to do to prepare society better and my experience has been society wants to engage but they don't quite know how to, and that's not surprising because we've kept disabled people out of society for a long period of time. And if we're going to encourage society or support society to understand how to be in relationship with disabled people, we need to give them the tools to do that. And I think um, I certainly see a lot of... Well, society should accept, I'm just going to enrol my child and society should accept them. Yep, maybe they should, but they won't. So what do we do to support that dance school or support that riding school or the gym that we go to to understand that this is how you support this child? This is what they might be likely to do. Actually, it's okay, let them do it, or this is what you will do. And I think we've, we've focused so much in our human service industry on the segregation congregation special that we've forgotten or have never learnt the skills of how do we integrate. And even though over my um, career uh, s- social inclusion and social integration have been common terms, we've actually very, very weak at doing that. And we will not get stronger at that if we continue to congregate and segregate.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, as you were talking there, what what comes to mind for me is, it all starts in school, right? So if there's segregated special needs classroom, then at a young age, kids are learning that segregation In congregation is okay, and they become the they or the others, right? And they're not part of us, right? So we're laying the foundation at at you know five years old, (laughs) right? Even
1: younger, you know, early childhood. If you've got a child with a disability, I I would recommend you get into an early childhood center in that ordinary place so that you're already forming relationships with those children that you're going to go to school with because it's harder then to say, oh, they're the other when I've known them as one of me, one of us. Um, And we do see a lot of, and I understand totally why this occurs, in those early years families are often in the, we've got to fix the child mode. But sometimes the best way of fixing the child is to make sure that they're in ordinary places. I mean, kids are just beginning to understand the world and the diversity that sits in the world. I mean, it's the same with um, people of colour, people of other cultures. Um, This is when kids start to integrate all of those people into their ordinary. So don't keep your kids away from that. That's where language will develop. It's where social skills will develop. It's where physical skills will develop. Then they go to school with their peers.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind for me is, I don't know who said it, and it was probably some personal development thing where I heard this from, but you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm -hmm. Right? So if we're in an environment where we're, forced to be with other people that that have disabilities and also have low expectations put on them and we're spending a lot of time with them, then we don't really have the opportunity to grow and to learn from those other people. But if we're in ordinary, you know, typical um, environments and we're spending time with ordinary, typical people that are also learning, um, then we have an opportunity to to grow at the same level or expectancy as those other people.
1: And kids, you know, they learn a lot by modelling. We watch other; they watch other people, and they try to do what other people do. Mm-hmm. Well, if the people they're watching aren't doing anything, they've got nobody to model. So, you know, really, right from tiny little ones, get them around other kids because particularly in those early years, it's not their peers that will reject them. It tends to be adults that reject. But it's much harder for adults to reject if these kids um, have known each other, have grown with each other, have expectations of each other.
0: Right. Going back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, um, I've, I've definitely heard that, heard parents wish for society to be more accepting mm-hmm. and I wanted to go down the vein of tools giving giving people tools to like tools for inclusion if we want to call it that. Um, is there anything that you found to be effective or any thoughts or ideas or strategies that you can share um, around what tools might might be available? to help people to create those more accepting environments?
1: You know, I think um, from my experience, the strongest tool that you can have is to keeping keep people close. You know, before this child is born, you had a network. Bring that network in and share that. Because if that child is in society with other people, with other valued people, value that child then it makes it easier for other members of society to understand how to interact with that child if it's just mum trying to control somebody who's having a meltdown that's problematic I go back to thinking of my daughter was her beautiful little blonde-headed blue-eyed curly-headed little kid that when we went to this craft fair and clearly there were too many people, too much noise, too much everything you could probably only see as far as people's knees. He threw himself on the floor in the biggest meltdown, screamed and yelled and carried on. She stepped over him and said, come on, Mum, people might think he belongs to us, and moved on. He got over the meltdown um, because that, It wasn't being encouraged, you know, by mum fussing around him and Trying to keep people away from him. He had all the old people looking at him and that wasn't gonna work And I think meltdowns
0: not working What's wrong? This meltdown's (laughs) not
1: working Um, So let's go and find mum again and you know, and then we of course had to be a bit sensible and say Maybe this environment's too crowded and we'll go out and we'll have a picnic somewhere on the grass but the more we keep things in the ordinary sphere, little kids have meltdowns. They do that irrespective of whether they've got a disability or not. And if we can modify that, if we can understand the environments that create that, when we can prepare them as they get older to know how to manage some of those, I think oftentimes we just, and it's totally understandable, isn't it? Because we're trying to live our own lives and, and, And lives get busy and we do things in a hurry and we often create the environments that in fact then lead to these situations. But often those situations are quite avoidable if we set the environments well beforehand and set the expectations up um, for kids beforehand because I think the kids that get rejected the most from society are kids as they get older who suffer from extreme anxiety and don't know how to manage that and so will have meltdowns or will hit people or will and and people just quite don't quite know mm. what what they need to do about that.
0: Yeah. I I uh I never thought about it that way in terms of your personal network actually helping I, I've thought about it in terms of like helping you access opportunities but Um, helping to enter social environments. Um, I think that's a really powerful, powerful thing that you just said. It
1: it helps to normalize the situation where other people don't see this person as um, a problem, a challenge, difficult, Mm -hmm. and other people then can bring other people in. The more isolated you get, the more likely society is to reject you. Right.
0: Right. Um, I want to switch gears slightly for, for a minute. Um, so I heard you say this quote and I wanted to have a chat about it. So I'm I'm paraphrasing here. It might not be your exact words. Um, but so you said, even though people with disabilities, so intellectual or developmental disabilities have their rights, they've yet to, actualize their rights so I think that there's there's commonality with any with other groups that are marginalized right so whether it's ethnic groups or people of color Um, but we talked a little bit about this um, before we started recording and you actually pointed out to me that it's the same but there's actually differences so could you maybe elaborate on that well
1: It's true that um, in in countries like Canada and New Zealand, any person who's a citizen has full rights. Um, However, for people with disabilities, we still have legislative legislation that entitles those rights to be stripped away from people, and we call that in this country we call that guardianship laws, and. Once a person has guardianship, an adult has guardianship taken over them, then they no longer have access to rights because those rights are accorded to the guardian, not to the disabled person. And, in fact, many of our institutions in New Zealand will almost demand that a person with a developmental disability has a guardian. Medical services, for example, dental services... And in some respects, unconsciously, they are demanding that this person give up their rights and give them to the guardian. We also have um, human service structures, which by their nature are very institutional, and they tend to be institutional because of the contractual relationships with government or the standards and compliance, which then deny people what we would consider fundamental rights. Now, most other groups, unless you're a prisoner, you can still, you might struggle to actualise those rights because you don't know your way into the society or society has chosen you as the group that they're going to reject or or whatever, but those rights are still there under the law. For many disabled people, they are not. And I look at the, um, the, um, you know, International Convention, United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which Canada and New Zealand are signatories to, and yet then I look at disabled people and think, okay, but you still do not actually have the right, the fundamental right to choose who you live with, who comes in out of your house, what they do when they're there. And yet every one of us would think that that was an unalienable right, but not for people with disabilities. Um but just to call on the rights doesn't change that. We have to give families and support staff the tools to ensure that people are more likely to be able to access those rights. Um, and unfortunately, if we just stand on a well, it's their rights, what I see are many people essentially dying with their rights on because staff don't know what else to do or being abandoned to very poor decisions because they have the right to make them. And we've got to have a balance there. We've got to absolutely honour rights, but we need to use our legislative framework to accord those rights and we've got to use our skills, capacities and and other um theoretical frameworks in order to sustain them for people so they can actually enact them
0: right and from the way that i'm looking at it in like individualized funding would be one of the tools to in, to allow a person to actualize their rights is that a statement that you would agree with look
1: that could be, I think individualised funding isn't a very important tool because you know, one of the principles of mana Kaha is to enhance the mana. It's mana enhancing. Well, it's mana enhancing when you have authority over your life, when you have authority over your services. The majority of us have that. We have that fundamental right to use our dollars to purchase the services that meet our needs. The same for people with disabilities. So if you have if you have got the say-so, even if you don't have the dollar in your back pocket, because many people just don't want the, the work that goes with that, but if you have the say-so that says this is my dollar, this is what I am seeking to purchase, then it is much your relationship shifts because the duty of the provider is between the person with the disability and the provider, not between the provider and the government, and the person with the disability simply needs to fit in. Um, But I think we need to be cautious at looking at, oh, individualised funding or personal budgets, this is the answer. No, it's one of the tools that might be helpful in some situations, because for many people, they won't have the capacity necessarily to manage that budget and they may not have anybody else who's able to do that for them. So if we, if we say, well, only people who can manage a personal budget or have family who will do that are going to get access to these opportunities, um, but the rest of you will still congregate, isolate, um, that's, not going to, that's not going to take us to where we need to be. Mm-hmm. But, but certainly in our Western society, access to the dollar shifts power. There's no two ways about that. Um, and we're certainly, in, in the work that we're doing, we're certainly seeing people then when they get their money making very different decisions that they would have made if it was, well, you can choose this provider or that provider. And actually, they're pretty much the same um, because they're all bound by the same contractual agreements with government. Uh, Will it help people to gain access to their rights? I think it's questionable. but, But will it enable people to gain access to greater life opportunities and therefore greater potential to be included and to have roles and to build relationships? If it's used wisely, it will. But we can't, you know, money doesn't sink. And so we can use money to purchase the institution just as easily as we can use money to purchase the good life. And we need to be very cautious that we don't sort of say, oh, this is the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, a lot of us use money very poorly.
0: Yes. So for those, so I like what you're saying there in terms of there's, there's a section of families and individuals that, um, have the capacity to manage an individualized budget budget, um, realizing that it it can be a, a powerful tool to help a person live a good life. Um, with some structured thinking and intentioned thinking behind that. Um, so what about that group that um, would benefit or is going to benefit from having that individualized budget, but maybe doesn't have the administrative capacity or energy? What are some examples of what you've seen there? Like how, how is have you seen that shake out and what have you seen be effective?
1: Um- well, there's two little models that are working in New Zealand at the moment which host money on behalf of people. One um, organisation which is called Nui which um, would translate into in charge, they will host money on behalf of people who feel that they're not able to manage it themselves but they don't employ the staff that employment relationship still sits with a disabled person or their family. And for some people, even that is too uh, difficult. So we have a, a small organization that's just developing now within our prototype, which is called Tato Tato, which is about it is about people, it's about people. They um, they will host the dollar and employ on your behalf. So you still get the say-so over who the staff is that's employed, what what you want those staff to do, what the outcomes are that you are wanting to achieve, but they will take on all of the employment responsibilities and accountabilities on behalf of people. So we're seeing a bit of diversity emerge and what we're finding with families, they will take some aspects of their funded package as a personal budget And other aspects, they will get hosted. So if they need to employ staff, they will often go to the host agency and say, you do that for me and you do all of the tax and the payments and the wages, but I'll take my personal budget to buy the equipment that I want or the specialist services that I need or the carer support um, package that I want. And I think um, we we've got to have diversity of options. There are some people who are still, and I imagine there always will be, who say, no, I need a provider to do all of that. I can't, I can't manage that. And we will always have people with developmental disabilities for whom their families have died, for whom there is nobody else, and that provider relationship then becomes critical. The key in some of the work that we're endeavouring to do now is how do you change the provider relationship so that it's not a power over top-down, bureaucratic, standardised relationship and how do you get that more outcome-based and interpersonal? And I think that's quite a big challenge that we are just beginning to try and tackle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's helpful to kind of break it out like that and share those those examples, Lorna. Um, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have some travel ahead of you and a meeting to uh, to get to today. Um, but are there any kind of closing messages, or uh, even it could be a story that that comes to mind that you want to leave with listeners?
1: You know, I think for a closing message, the message I would say to for families, is hold a very strong vision for a positive, meaningful, full and inclusive life. Hold that vision. That is not a trivial thing because if you don't hold that vision through all of the hard times, then you will get blown. Whichever way the wind's blowing, that's what will happen for your son or daughter i I was with a family some years ago now, many years ago now, who told me this little story about um their journey with their disabled child. They said to me that this child was the only disabled person they had ever met, and this was their baby, and that's often the case for many families actually, and that's an enormous kind of challenge to take on and they said. Um, the messages they got from the medical system was a message of tragedy and burden and challenge and struggle. And they said a friend of theirs gave them, the day they took their baby home, this friend gave them a card and it was a blank card. And the friend said to them, now when you get home tonight, I want you to write in this card everything that you wish for and hope for in the life of this baby. And then every night before you go to bed, read the card and ask, is what we did today taking us towards our hopes or further away from them? And they said that stabilised their thinking when it came to do we go to a special school or do we go to an ordinary school? The decision was made the day that baby came home from the hospital. Does my child live and die in their own home? That decision was made. And so that clear vision of we will pursue these things and we won't be diverted from them, we might have to work around a few things and we might have to kind of change the way we get there, but we won't be diverted from them. Mm. secures a future if you don't have the vision somebody else will have one and it won't be for that life that you hoped for and i think to me that's the strongest message families can get Mm.
0: that's a beautiful way to wrap up the podcast lorna um thank you so much for taking the time and and sharing your insights and your wisdom and your stories from along your journey. And um, I'm just super grateful that, uh, that I've had the opportunity to, to learn from you and um, grateful for the work that you do and, and your leadership. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right, tons of wisdom in that conversation with Lorna Sullivan, and again, just so much gratitude for Lorna coming on the podcast and sharing her experiences, stories, and wisdom with us. And if that idea of holding and creating a positive, powerful vision to support your family member to create a meaningful, uh, fulfilling um, full life is something that, you want to work on or you are working on or maybe you want to refresh with your family member um, there's an opportunity coming up uh, in a free workshop that i'm hosting and it's going to guide you step by step to build that awesome positive powerful future vision with your family member and it's called uh, the free empowering ability masterclass workshop series and it starts on january 2nd so you can check that out at empoweringability.org forward slash workshop and inside this free masterclass series I'm going to help you learn how to support your family member to have more independence to understand a way to get the right supports with your family member and I'm going to give you a step-by-step guide to creating that positive future vision that's going to lead you forward and your family member forward so again you can sign up and register for free at empoweringability.org forward slash workshop thank you so much for listening to the podcast today Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit please share it with them Uh, be a part of the change think differently about disability